I was preparing a lesson for this, and I was going through the lesson, and the more I got into the lesson, the more difficult it got, so I changed my lesson. And, and it's, I don't know, Kyle never has some problem, but sometimes when I do lessons, I think I've already done this lesson. So if I've done it, you heard it, you hear it again. You ever think of the Bible or the New Testament as a book for the everyday person? I don't think we think in that way of it. The Bible, especially in the New Testament, uh, can elicit a wide range of, of emotions from one who reads it. And granted, their actions may be based on how they perceive their own spiritual life, but there's a wide range of emotions. One of the emotions that you can get out of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is anger. Over in Romans chapter five, or you know, chapter three, verse twenty-three, is is a passage that you know is real, real familiar. For all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And somebody by read that and says, "But I'm a good person. I help the poor. I give money to the Salvation Army. And I go to church at least once a month." And when I drink, I don't usually get drunk. And I never use God or Jesus' name when I curse. But I'm a good person. And I really resent saying that all have sinned and fallen short of glory. I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. On the other side of it, you have the passage in John 3.16, which is probably the most memorized passage in it. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son that ever should believe in him should have life eternal, but not perish. Well, I, although I'm imperfect, I believe, truly believe that Jesus, uh, and Jesus, and I'm happy to know that their eternal life awaits me. You know, and, and it is an encouraging thing. Of course, what many people do when they read that is they leave out, you know, why is Jesus the source of eternal life? There, there must be something that he is providing that I can't get otherwise. They miss that point, but they see the good stuff, and it's good that they see the positive in there. Over in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, is another passage, the first part of it, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. At the end it says, For the wages of sin is death. And she said, Ooh, if I do something wrong, I'm going to die. Well, yeah, that's something that's happening, but there's more permanent death. And then you turn over to Rowan, to Revelation, and you read passages such as Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and talking about uh, the devil. It says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then if you look over in verse 15, it says, And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. And again in chapter 21, verse 8, But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and adulterers and all liars, their part will be in 
the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You read that, the wages of sin is death, and you read what awaits the sinful person. I would think if you have were normal, be pretty afraid. You know, that's about the only thing that you can compare to the fire, a lake of fire and brimstone would be um, a volcano. And I don't know anybody that's been, I had ashes rained on them, lived. You know, look at Pompeii and all the stuff that they're finding. You know, that's pretty, pretty scary. But this is just not something that's going to fall on you once. This is internal. And how long is eternity? It keeps on going and going and going and going. That's a long time. That can really put a lot of fear in you. But you look just a few verses before uh, 21.8 and look in verse 4. It says, And he will wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he's talking about the new heaven. For some of us older folks who never took, like John, uh, intricate studies into the human body and the organs and all that, we do our own form of anatomy. It's like waking up in the morning and feeling this bone ache, that bone ache. All of a sudden, I can't grip with this hand because they're hurting. And I feel all sorts of things. Um, it's, it's comforting to know that there's going to be a world when I'm not going to be in pain. I'm not going to suffer. I don't have to go through them testing my blood every several weeks to make sure I'm not getting some disease from the medicine take. Or every other week, Judy going to shoot me with a Ameripen so that I get medicine to help me feel better and all the other stuff. And I hate needles. It's nice to know that I have all these positive things to look for. Well, Grant, if I've been found faithful at the end of time. But you ever think about the New Testament as being discouraging? You think there's this something discouraging in there? Yeah. It can be. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're familiar with this chapter. It's been quoted many times. Skiles quoted recently. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now that's, I'm in the updated New American Standard Version. And the ver I, I think the word conviction has, in one book that I have, has a present past tense. Now Paula and Joe can tell you what a present past tense word is because I don't know. I looked it up, but it's not helping. But it says also in verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him. And he who is, comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Well, then what, is the, what does Hebrews do? It tells you about Noah, who builds this boat with his sons oh, for 100 years. This huge boat that has all of these animals going in there. Well, I don't have any sons, so nobody's going to help me do anything. You know, unless I get somebody to have mercy on me. Um, you have Abraham. He goes from one territory to another. He wanders. He has his family. He has all his possessions that he gets. 
Um, he's promised the son, and through the son, all nations will be blessed. And so he has the son. And then it goes on and on, and you see. You have people like um, Gideon or Samson or Jephthah or David or Samuel. All of these wonderful people, this, these super people that were ordinary people, yes, but they were super people that they did wonderful things. David was a king, a man after God's own heart. And we're reading in 1 Samuel right now, and it just made it real clear that Saul was not a, a man after God's own heart, but David was, and the kingdom was going to be given to David. And all of these people were special. And you look at that and say, wow, faith is a great thing. But I am totally, I have the best weed garden in the world. Kyle's been over there and Ollie and the boys have been over there. I've got weed growing this well, better than my, my vegetables. I can't put a board together. And I certainly am computer illiterate. Uh, Alan has helped me quite a few. Uh, my brother-in-law helps me. A lot of people. I just can't do anything. And so I read something like this, and it just it can be discouraging. And say, but that's not me. I'm just an ordinary person. I don't have all these gifted skills. And so I look at the Bible, and I think, man, what about me? But God has something in here. And it's interesting that the three accounts that I'm going to give you are all found in the book that we're studying in our Bible study. We've been studying at Jay's place and over to the public library, and we'll be studying at uh, uh, Cottage, whatever it is, the place that has good liver and onions uh, meal. We'll be studying there. It's from the book of Mark. If you want to turn your Bible to go along with me, you can. And so we're going to look at Mark. We're going to start off from the second chapter. Mark the second chapter, and we're going to start reading in verse 2 through verse 12. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the words to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their face, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can give forgive sins but God alone immediately Jesus aware of in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves said to them why are you reasoning about these things in your heart which is easier to say to a paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say get up and pick up your pallet and walk but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive he said to the paralytic I say to you get up pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. So they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Again, over in chapter 5. 
verse 22 and 21 and 22, or excuse me, 22 and 23. The Jesus had been over in Decapolis and the, the area of the Gerasenes, and he just uh, healed the demonic man and allowed 2,000, the legion of evil spirits into 2,000 ahead of uh, pigs, and they went into the ocean. Now he's back on the other side. He says, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter's at the point of death. Please come and lay your hand on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Later on, we read in verse 35, While we're still speaking, there came from the house of the synagogue officials, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what had been spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Also in verses 35 through 38, or excuse me, 24 to 34, we read, And he went off with him, and the crowd was following him and passing in on him. And a woman had a, a hemorrhage for 12 years, and it had endured much at the hands of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up to the crowd, being behind him, and touched him. For she thought, If I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the fire proceeded from him, had gone forth, turned around in the crowd, and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. Does anybody know the name of the paralytic? Where was he from? Was he from Capernaum? Was he from Nazareth? Was he from some place up in what used to be the territory of Dan towards the north of uh, Judea? Was he from Bethel? Was he from Bethlehem? Where was he from? Nobody knows who he was. He had no name. He was obscure before he came and talked to Jesus. He was obscure afterwards. He was a nobody. And I don't mean that disrespectfully that he was not personal value. But nobody knows him. He wasn't anybody important to, except to himself, his family, and his friends. Who was he? What about the woman with the flow? All we know about her is she's had a hemorrhage for 12 years. But where was she from? What was her name? Was she from Capernaum? 
what do you know about her? Was she rich? Why was she poor now? Because they took all her money uh, from her, basically, for trying to heal her. Did she have a family? Did she have children? Grandchildren? A husband? We don't know anything about this. She is a nameless individual. What about Jairus? How many Jairuses do you think there might be in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament world? I don't know how common the name is, but it might be quite common. And it didn't say he was the synagogue official. He says he was a official. In other words, other officials. And what synagogue? Capernaum. Again, was it Nazareth? Bethel? Bethlehem? Jericho? Where? I would imagine it was fairly close to where Jesus was. We don't know. Um, but nobody knows. These people were anonymous, except for Jairus. We don't know anything more about them, except what we hear here. They're just ordinary people, just like you and I. They're not some hero that, that got the axe uh, head out of the water or killed a thousand people with the jaw of a lion or whatever the people did. Did you read in Hebrews 11? They were just ordinary people. But they had the things that were common. What Scripture says in Hebrews 11:6, you know, they believed in him and that he was a rewarder of those who sought him. The paralytic let no obstacle prevent him from getting to Jesus. He knew and believed that Jesus could take care of him, and he didn't let anything interfere. He didn't care if there was a big crowd. He was going to get to Jesus, and he did. Jairus, even when he was told that his daughter was already dead, he could have said, you know, I, I really, really appreciate the fact that you were going to go with me, and you were going to take care of my daughter and help me. She's dead. You don't have to bother with me anymore. He didn't stop believing. He continued on because he believed Jesus could heal his daughter. And if she was dead, he probably believed that she could raise him, raise her. And the woman with the flow. Jesus had healed other people. She believed he could heal her. He didn't, she didn't say, hey, Jesus, will you heal me? Jesus, you know, put your hand on me and say some words or, or tell me that I'm going to get healed. If I just touch his clothes, if I just touch him, I'll get healed. All of these acted with faith. They believed that the person that could help them was Jesus. That a faith was not just a belief. It was a belief coupled with an action. They went to Jesus. They did something. And they believed that Jesus could do what they needed. The paralytic, healing the man. Jairus, healing or raising his daughter. The woman with the flow, healing her. No man could do it. They all believed in it. These are three ordinary people. Yet their message is extremely powerful maybe even more powerful than the heroes we read in Hebrews 11. And that's just my opinion. 
we know about Abraham. We know about all these people. But here's somebody that's just an ordinary individual who believed in God, who believed that Jesus could do something for them and acted in faith. And they were rewarded for that. These men and women, or these men and women, and all people like that are certainly an example for us ordinary people to follow. They believed, they acted, and they were rewarded for this. Hayden, about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, has been that long? She's saying about a year. Is it about a year? Okay, a year ago. Two weeks ago, Ryder. Last week, Faith. And all of us that are Christians, how many of you have seen Jesus? Raise your hand. None of us. How many have seen the cross on which he died? None of us. How many of us know that he actually lived? Except what we read here. We did the same thing that these people in the Bible did. They believed in something or someone. And they acted on it. All of us who became Christians acted on the belief that the Bible was just not a book of fairy tales and you know, a feel-good book that somebody got and made a story out of, but it was the truth. We believed there really was a Jesus. We believed that he really did come to earth. We believed that he really did die on the cross. We really believed that in dying on the cross, he took our sins. We really believe that the Bible is a revealed word of God. And that following it faithfully, that there's a promise of eternal life for us with God. We are ordinary people. And we get discouraged about our faith and things. Turn to the Bible and look at passages about people who were just like you and me. People that had no names, they weren't all that important in terms. They weren't heroes of the Bible and had four or five chapters or two books written about. Just people of you verses. And I think you'll get encouraged that faith can be enjoyed by all of us. Now, faith is more than just a belief. It is an action. James talks about that the demons believed in God, but they didn't do anything. So faith without action is not going to be anything. Ryder and Faith and Hayden and all of us that are Christians, we just didn't believe. We did something, and we, we took an action, and we have continued to act and believe, living our lives according to what we read. We live our lives according to God's will because we believe that at the end of our days, if we have been faithful, that we will be rewarded for that. And everything we do, we believe on it. The world is opposed to God, and the world's opinion changed. And now what is acceptable, for the most part, 
It's in opposition to God. We talked about it in John's class this morning. It used to be commercials you saw the perfect mom and the perfect dad and the little girl and the little boy and they're all smiling. They have a dog and all that. Now you see two men or two women or they're engaged. You have all sorts of ideas out there, most of which oppose what God has said. But it's what society says, okay. We believe what the Bible says. We don't believe what man says. We don't believe what Kyle says. And I don't say Kyle is teaching this error, but he would be the first one to tell you, don't listen to what he says. Listen to what God says. He's just telling you what he's, he hears and understands. But he would say, if I'm wrong, please tell me, because he does not want to teach anything but the truth. The same thing for me. If I'm wrong, tell me. And believe me, I know you all would do that. John has corrected me quite a few times in, in class on, on Psalms and stuff. I just totally missed. And he taught me. Our faith brought us so far. And our faith, followed by our actions, and following what God says, not a man, but what God says, will lead us to an eternal home. But we need to remain steadfast. It's very easy to be drawn away by the world whose opinions differ. If you're subject to the invitation, in any way we can help you and encourage you, we hope you can come, will come forward. Faith is for all of us whether we're an extraordinary person or just the average Joe. It's for all of us.